Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple that you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. Today's guest is Scott Hamilton an Olympic gold medalist and founder of Scott Hamilton Cares Foundation, an organization that is working to eliminate cancer. Now, Scott obviously doesn't need much of an introduction. You already know about his gold medal in figure skating. You probably have seen his incredible backflips on the ice, and you have likely watched him as a commentator on the Olympics over the years. And while you may know him for his successes, you may not know about the challenges that he's had to overcome to win. His childhood illness, cancer, multiple brain tumors, the times he's fallen on the ice in critical situations. Scott says any goal will always have obstacles, difficulties, and setbacks. You will be defined not by those setbacks, but by how you respond to them. There's so much that we can learn from Scott about how to get up after we all fall. And let me tell you something, we all do. I'm so excited to have you listen in. Here's my conversation with my new friend and soon to be yours, Scott Hamilton. Scott, it's great to have you on the show. Well, thank you. This is fun. I'm really excited to meet a fellow cancer survivor and uh, someone who's really stepping into this space because I think leadership right now is needed more than it's ever been needed in our culture. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, we're going to talk about that. But, you know, right now it's time for the Olympics. And here we are glued to the tube in Beijing, you know. And for the last 40 years, the Olympics have been a big part of your life as a competitor and a commentator. From your perspective, what makes the Olympics so special? So many things. It's the world coming together in peace. Uh, that's, I think, the main thing. It's it, There's no other movement. There's no other organization. There's no other time or place in our world where someone can just say, lay down your arms for the next 16 days while we celebrate youth, excellence, sport, and what we have in common instead of what drives us apart. I think that's the the first thing about the Olympics. I think that's so compelling. The second thing is, you know, I think we all love our communities. We all love our homes. We all love the idea that, you know, we're rooting for our own and, you know, let's go out and get them. And, and to hear these stories of dedication and hard work and sacrifice and overcoming, because everybody overcomes something to be at the Olympic Games. And I think all of those stories are inspiring as well. And, uh, you know, just, again, the excitement of the competition. We all love that, you know, adrenaline rush we get by watching someone do something that we can't even imagine doing ourselves. So uh, there's so much about the Olympics that is attractive. By the time an Olympics comes around, I can't tell you how many times I hear people say, oh, man, we desperately need an Olympics right now. (laughs) Yeah, I love all the backdrop stories. You've got one of the best I've ever heard of. And, and, you know, it brings out so much emotion. And speaking of of emotion, in the 1980 Olympics at Lake Placid, you had the honor of carrying the American flag into the opening ceremony. I mean, how'd you get that honor, Scott? And what was that like? I mean, you know, you got all these athletes and it's you. I, yeah, I, you know, I was a tourist. You know, I was there, the third guy on a three-man team. I had no chance of meddling. I thought if I came in eighth, I won the lottery, basically. When they brought up the idea, you know, at the first team meeting for figure skating, it's like, hey, guys, here's how it's going to lay out. We're going to elect two captains, you know, a male and a female from the figure skating, and they're going to go and represent us with all the other sports. And one of the duties is they're going to choose somebody to carry the flag in the opening ceremonies. And, and it was really funny. I remember just stepping back. And thinking, what would that be like to carry the flag into the opening ceremonies at Olympic Games? And then I thought, okay, wake up. You're just, you know, <laughs> this is like Walter Mitty stuff. This this doesn't belong to you. Just dismiss it and go back to doing your job. And so um, I you know, went about my Olympics and, and I was in a movie. I think we were watching Close Encounters of the Third Kind in the Village. They had a little theater in the village for the athletes. And that was the night of the meeting. And the captains for figure skating were Michael Botticelli 
and Stacy Smith, and they pulled me out of the meeting, and they just said, "Oh man, you've really done it this time." And it's like I, I, I was like, <laughs> I was starting to like get flush, and I, I could feel the my temples throbbing, and I, I was starting to sweat. I go, "I didn't do anything wrong. I promise, I didn't do a thing. I, I'm, I've been perfect. This whole, what, what, what is going on? What is have I, have I been accused of something? What, what's happening?" And then I looked over and Cindy Reed was saying that I go, why, why is she here? And she was just looking at me with this kind of like look on her eye, like she was so excited. And I was like, what's happening here? And they go, well, I'll tell you what you've done. You've been elected to carry the flag in the opening ceremonies. And it was just, it was like, why? <laughs> you know, was, and Michael who is a pair skater and he was one of my dearest friends. He said, you know, sitting in that meeting, everybody was talking about excellence and winning and everybody promoted somebody that was expected to have be high profile at the games. And it just struck him that maybe this Olympics shouldn't be about the destination, but about the journey. And my journey had been so unique with childhood illness. And I was a dedicated underachiever for many, many years during my initial years of being on the national scene. And then I lost my mother to cancer. And then I had a coach and that didn't work out. And I went to another coach in faith who'd never really had a champion at that level. And, you know, he promoted me as this is about the journey, not about the destination. Wow. And they voted for me. And so... Um, it's one of the proudest moments of my life. It, there's so many, you know, backstory comedic moments about that thing, you know, all ending with my parade uniform fitting. They've never had an <laughs> Olympian my size before, I guess, because uh, nothing fit. Now, are you 5'4 or 5'3? Because I've heard both. Well, I think it vacillates. I think, you know, I was 5'3 and a half, and then I went through chemo and I went to 5'4. And I think now, you know, I'm in my 64th year. I just had my 63rd birthday last summer. And so I think I'm kind of one of those guys that's slowly uh, succumbing to gravity, <laughs> as it were. <laughs> now, in that Olympics, as part of your journey, you finished fifth in that Olympics. Mm -hmm. What did that experience teach you, Scott? You know, I did the math and I looked around and I looked at the other skaters and the previous world championship I competed in was 1978. Same pool of athletes, I was 11th. So I'm looking around and thinking, if I could come in eighth, that would be that would be a win. And then I was eighth in figures, and I just lit up the free skating. And I was uh, fourth in the short, fourth in the long, and I pulled up to fifth overall. It, it was astounding because, you know, soon after that, you know, and I always try to be really well-liked by my competitors and Robin Cousins and I trained together for a year and a half, and uh, we're good friends, and he won the gold medal. Uh, the silver medal was Jan Hoffman, and I remember um, Jan, I just adored him. He was from East Germany, and very German. He was very, very focused, very German, very Teutonic in his skating. He had not an artistic bone in his body, but I really respected him. And I remember the first practice we had on the Olympic Fieldhouse Ice, the Americans practiced with the East Germans, and I did a waxel, all right, which is an axle that's wacky axle, waxel, and I went straight off my heel and I went flying up in the air, and they had just made the ice, and so it was still a little bit wet, and I was going full tilt boogie, right? So I missed this jump, and I was going straight for the boards, and I was about to get hurt, and from behind me, this hand grabbed the back of my shirt, and he was very tall, very strong, and he picked me straight up onto my feet and saved my life. <laughs> I looked up and it was Jan. I go, I go, I, I go, I owe you big. I go, I'll never, I'll, you're my hero for life. And and we just always had a really sweet relationship, you know. And then he was silver that year at the Olympics. And then the third place gentleman was Charlie Tickner from the USA. And we were great friends still to this day, great friends. And and it was after that Olympics and the ensuing world championships where I came in fifth again that I woke up one morning and I realized that Robin's turning pro, Jan is going to medical school, and Charlie Tickner is turning pro. So all I had to do is wake up and I'm ranked second in the world. <laughs> and it's like, I am so close to the top. What do I need to do to get there? And it was, I needed to really take a... Um, a heaping helping of humble pie. And it was there that I kind of understood that what was holding me back wasn't anyone else. It was me. And I, I needed to get in touch with my weaknesses and, you know, the things that I 
pushed away. The parts of the job I didn't like, which were the compulsory figures. And I needed to figure out a way to um, repair my relationship with the figures and move forward in my skating because I was that close to becoming a, a champion. So you come in fifth, Scott. When most people say fifth, uh, you know. No, I, mean, that's no, not no, I was I mean, thrilled. I mean, you know, but yeah, you're thrilled about it. You, you write in your book, Finish First, that not only should we expect lots and lots of failure, but we should also be grateful when it shows up because it means we're on the right track. You know, why do you believe that the failure really should be looked at as your greatest asset? Well, there's so many things about it. I mean, you know, um, I go back to a story of my son when he started playing hockey. You know, he got killed in a house league game. And he came off the ice and he was really upset. And he, he just, like, he was so angry. And I go, okay, let's break it down. What, what happened today? And he goes, well, they skate faster than me. And I go, and? That means you got to what? Work harder on my skating. Oh, good. And what else? They took the puck away from me every time I had it. And I go, well, that's kind of the nature of the game. But what did you learn from that? And he goes, I got to work on my stick handling. And I go, great. What else? And he goes, um, I, I just don't like losing. And I go, okay, well, let's just say today you won. What would you have learned? And he looked at me and he just goes, nothing. I go, precisely. So we learn from failure. And failure isn't scarring or disfiguring or anything else. I think we put such a, an identity on failure that we avoid it. We think it's, it's going to be something that we have to carry with us for the rest of our life. And I try to encourage people that failure is 100% information only information. If we can break it down to information instead of this horrible, toxic, scarring, disfiguring entity that we have to carry around with us for the rest of our life, I think we can move forward towards excellence or towards the best version of ourselves that we can be. And, and so I'm, I'm a big fan of failure. I've fallen on the ice minimum 41,600 times, but it's, <laughs> it's getting up 41,600 times that allows you to understand the process of learning, the process of growing, and the process of getting to where you want to be. Now, I'm going to make one of the big understatements of all time. After the 1980 Olympics, you went on a pretty impressive stretch. That's my understatement. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's that's so my funny. understatement because yeah. tell me about those years that led up to the 1984 Olympics and how did that affect your mindset going into those games? Well, I mean, it's like I, I turned into the Miami Dolphins, like the 72 Dolphins, right? Because I keep waiting for somebody to go four years undefeated and it hasn't happened since 1984. In that stretch, you know, it's part gauntlet, part roller coaster, right? So, you know, I, I went into that first year and I, I didn't do well my first competition. I came in second in an international competition in England. And then I came back and um, I just decided that was unnecessary. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, I didn't, that didn't need to happen. That was self-inflicted. And so I put my head down. And I just said, never again. And so the first competition was October of the streak was October of 1980, and that was in Calgary, and it was the Skate Canada competition. I won that competition, and then I never lost again. Um, as an amateur Olympic competitor, I never lost another competition after that. And there were some highs and lows. Like after I won my first world championship, I'm looking around thinking either I've got to get better. I'm on the podium with a gold medal. I've got to get better or maybe this is the lowest place in our sports history if I'm its champion, you know? So I, <laughs> it was a psychologically disruptive experience, me winning the world championships. But the next year, I kind of survived the year because, again, I was almost afraid to take the ice for practice because how could I ever repeat that, right? And then I won again at the Nationals and I won again at the world championships. And I'm looking around and I'm not thinking the same thing I thought the first time. I'm thinking, these are just guys like me. They're just guys. They're just guys that are showing up every day trying to do well, trying to win, trying to put themselves in a good position. They're just like, they're not, I'm not competing against every sentient being on the planet earth. And I'm not competing against the history of the sport. I'm competing against guys that put their pants and their skates on one leg at a time, one foot at a time. And it's like, no, it's just guys. So let's just step into that for the next two years and figure out a way to stay ahead of these guys 
and hopefully I can, you know, survive the gauntlet and the emotional roller coaster and you know, all the injuries and all the slumps and everything that comes with that to show up at an Olympics and try to bring home a gold medal. Well, you certainly did that. And I have to ask you, you know, just the thought of this almost brings chills to me to think about standing on the podium, hearing the national anthem, you know, getting that gold medal around your neck. I mean, what was going on in your brain? Yeah, it's a collision of every single emotion you can probably imagine. So, you know, I step up on the podium, you know, one, two, top podium, and I'm like, I made it through the gauntlet right? There was relief, right? And then um, the reality of it came down where, you know, it's almost like you put yourself through so much in that four-year period that there's this overwhelming sense of, it's just like, now I can finally relax and just let go, you know, because you're just wound up so tight over those four years. And that was another part of it. And then I started thinking about the sacrifices that my parents made and the people around me made and how they made it possible. And there was this overwhelming sense of responsibility and almost a guilt-ridden uh, gratitude. Okay, put that together. And then I thought, well, I've, this is what I've been doing since I was nine years old. Who, who am I now? I mean, what, do I, who, what am I doing? And so you look over the edge of the podium and you're like looking over the edge of a cliff because it's like now your, your life is different. And it's like, what, do I, what am I striving for now? I've just, I've done everything I can possibly do in the sport. And then comes the anthem and the medal presentation and um, just the pride in country when that anthem's playing, the flag goes up. This is a shared moment with your country. This isn't a personal achievement. This is an achievement for the United States of America. And, and all of that just swells in. And then I can't wait to hug my dad. And and this is, you know, my coach believed in me and all the, again, gratitude. And then the the sadness that it's over. And then what, you know, all those things. And and then you you step into the next, and and it's just um, how are you going to step into the next? Which is an unbelievably important mentality because I've seen you know a lot of people come out of the Olympics with hardware, and it's toxic to the rest of their lives. And I did not want that to be me. I was one of those guys that, as much as I put my hand on the stove, I avoided a lot of stoves by watching others. And I saw what this type of achievement can do to people. They get stuck and I didn't want to get stuck. I want to get into how you move forward, but I first of all have to say, I've never heard the phrase step into the next. That's a really cool way to think about what we're constantly doing in life. Oh, you know, constantly, and, yes. But, I want, but before we step into the next, I want to stay right where we're at for a second. You said she represented the United States of America. And, and as I understand it, your medal really broke a 24-year drought for the United States in figure skating. Did that mean anything to you? Did you know that? Or is that something that you learned later? Or did well, you really yes. even care about that? No, I knew about it because, again, the power of leadership, right? So the guy that won the Olympics in 1960 was a guy named David Jenkins. He was a doctor. He lives in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And he was the last guy to win Olympic gold. And he won three world championships and didn't go to the worlds after the Olympics. He just decided he was done. So going through the gauntlet, I, we got to um, year three of the four years. And that was the 1983 world championships in Helsinki, Finland. And our team doctor was David Jenkins. And he'd never volunteered for that role before. He just wanted to make sure that he did everything he possibly could to get me through that world championship so I'd be heavily favored for the Olympics. Wow, that is an incredible story. No, there, it's beyond <laughs> sacrifice. I mean, it was so generous that this man was so humble because a lot of people don't remember this, but the year after he won his gold medal, the 1961 United States uh, figure skating team was headed to the world championships and crashed. Their plane crashed in Antwerp, Belgium. And it took our entire team, all of our coaches, everything. This the entire sport was decimated. And I was the, the next guy to win. I mean, they had Dorothy Hamill and Peggy Fleming had won on the women's side before me. But um, 
I was the next male. Because when you look back, you know, Dick Button was 48. Dick Button was 52. Hayes Jenkins was 56. David Jenkins was 60. And it looked like that was going to continue on, you know, after them. And it was badly disrupted. And we had a lot of guys win world championships, but no one had broken through to win an Olympic gold medal. So David Jenkins was a huge part of my story, and I'll always be grateful for that. You know, uh, uh, I saw Chris Paul, the great basketball guard, you know, when he came back from the Summer Olympics in, in Beijing, and I was at a golf event, and he had the, the medal around his neck, and everybody was taking pictures, and I think I even actually got to hold it, you know, which was kind wow. of special for me, yeah. you know. What'd you do with your medal, Scott? Okay, again, it's complicated. <laughs> So when I got back from the Olympics, the city of Denver held a big parade, like 5,000 people in Larimer Square. Uh, The mayor was there. The governor's wife was there. It was a big celebration. It was just big fuss. So that week, I got invited to two things. One was was the uh, governor's office of Colorado, and he sat me down, just him and I, and he talked to me about hometown hero syndrome which is, you know, the quarterback throws the bomb at the end of the high school championship season, wins the state championships, gets carried off the field, and feels like the rest of his life is going to be that way, and it's just not. So he really wanted to prepare my heart for just the fact that, and he said, I don't want you, I want you to enjoy the fruits of your labor. I want you to enjoy this time, but I just want you to know that it's going to end, and, and I want you to be prepared for that end. And I walked out of that office thinking, wow, that was really generous. That was, that was amazing. That was wisdom. And I, I held on to that. And so right after that, the Paralympic athletes came back from Sarajevo, and I was asked to speak at the banquet, which was in Denver. And so I, I walked in, you know, kind of with my medal and kind of like, and I'm looking at all these athletes. Some were blind, some were um, at multiple amputations, and they all had the same medal as I, but they were... they did things I couldn't imagine doing rise above their circumstances to be able to compete on a global level. I was able-bodied. They weren't. And, And it was like, who am I? And so from that day forward, that medal lived in a brown paper bag in my underwear drawer. I couldn't wait to get rid of it. Because I just, and I didn't understand why at the time, but it offended me to have that medal. It offended me. And it just felt like if I keep this thing around, I'm going to get stuck and I'm never going to find my way out. And so um, I finally um, was inducted into the World Figure Skating Hall of Fame and U.S. Figure Skating said, "Um, would you like for us to have some of your memorabilia here at the museum? And I just said, can you please take all of it. And they said, all of it? And I go, all of it, every, everything. I don't, I don't want it. I don't want to have anything. I don't want it around me. I don't want it to, because I didn't, I, it's almost like it's, it's a weight, right? And I wanted to be able to launch into a professional career, into the next with, you know, a, ambition and um, an open mind and an open heart. And I wanted to go into it with a lot of intensity and the same kind of work ethic that I went into my competitive career. And they took everything. And it was like, I realize now that I've really um, come to faith and that I've really dedicated my life to the Lord, that those things can become idols Mm -hmm. and they can prevent you from, you know, being the whole person and and rising above, you know, not only your failures, but your successes. Because successes can be more debilitating than failures. Uh, you know, I was really happy to get rid of all of it. It's all there. They look after it. Wh- who cares? It's done. It's over. It's done. Get you know, it out like, of that brown paper bag and put it in the Hall of Fame. Something like that. You know, put it place where it really, really belongs, you know. They said, now, where's your medal? And I brought out the brown paper bag. And they're like, that it's in there, really? And I go, yeah, it's been in there for eight years. Take it. <laughs> you did win that Olympic medal, though. And everything changes when you win. You know, oh, yeah. How has it impacted your life, just winning? The Olympics, um, it gave me a level of credibility in the marketplace where I was able to leverage that into my first job with the Ice Capades. I told the president of Ice Capades, and I have a picture of him right here in my office because I really admired him. He was kind of a grumpy, you know, like he, he led with that kind of like, you know, focus and seriousness. And 
Um, I said, I'm going to be the best employee you ever had. And he goes, no, you're not. And I go, yeah, I, I, I'm telling you right now, I'm going to be the best employee you've ever had. I'll never miss a show and I'll never miss a press opportunity to promote the show. And he said, yeah, you know what? All you Olympic guys say that, but by the time you get to us, you feel like the work is done and you end up partying and then missing shows and we have to give tickets back to unhappy customers because you're not there. And and it's like, we've done this so many times. It's like, you know, you're... you're you're, I know you're saying this for my benefit, but you're not going to be the best employee we ever had. And I go, mark my words. And he goes, okay. So I had a two-year contract with a third-year option. And in the last show of my second year, I'm just chomping at the bit because I did it. I made it through that gauntlet of not only doing what I was expected to do, but I, I, was, I was contracted for 20 weeks a year, and I did 23 average. I never missed a show. I took over for other athletes that were injured or ill, and I never missed a press opportunity, even if a car didn't show up to pick me up, right? I ran to television studios sometimes just to make sure that I didn't miss that press opportunity. The president of Ice Capades came to my last night, and I was waiting for my third-year option. And he goes, you did it. Congratulations. And I go, well, you know, I'm waiting for my third-year option. He goes, you know, we just recently went through a sale. And I go, I go, I, I'm really looking, I'm excited to meet the new owners. And he goes, well, he doesn't want to meet you. And it's like, well, why? And he said, well, he only wants women. He doesn't want male stars. He only wants women stars. So we're letting you go. And so I met with my manager, Bob Kane, and he said, um, I, you know, I, we've done everything we can. Ice Capades will not take you back. They only want women. And I was like, okay, okay, well. Um, he goes, do you want to help us start a tour? And I looked at him and I laughed and I said, let me check my calendar. <laughs> <laughs> it was like blank. And so they gave me this five city opportunity to prove that a tour of elite skaters would be viable. <clears throat> and we did five cities in the Northeast. Our first city was in Bangor, Maine. The next four cities, we got stronger and better. And they said, let's try this five more cities in December, and we did that, and it was really popular. And then we started adding three city runs in the spring. Those little um, experiments became Stars on Ice, which is a show that still exists to this day. And you founded that, and you built that, and and you know that's a heck of a leadership challenge. How did you go about just recruiting the talent that you you needed to have to make the show go? Well, I just you know I I kind of said, do you want to be the tail or the dog? You know, and they all said, dog. And I go, well, let's go. Let's take control of our own lives and careers and let's build a company that can really allow us to skate at the highest level possible in a rock and roll setting where we, we're in and we're out. We do, we don't, instead of doing 12, you know, shows in one city where we get like totally burnt out, let's go in, do one show in one city and move on to the next and the next and the next and keep our skating up at its highest level. And, and the skaters are, yeah. Yeah, like, you know, Rosalind Sumners, who was silver in Sarajevo um, in the ladies' competition, she was just floundering in Disney on Ice. So I go, come to us. And she said, gladly, let's go. And, you know, I, I Brian Pokar and Tyler Cranston and all these other really great skaters uh, decided to come with us as well. And, you know, Sandy Lenz was on the 80 Olympic team with me. They were friends. We were all dear friends. And we just linked arms and we worked really hard to present our first show is something that should be taken seriously. And we, we had theatrical lighting and we had um, a great choreographer. And, and it just was one of those things where by the time, you know, we came to being a tour, Dorothy Hamill said, you know, I'll come, I'll join. Wow. And then uh, Dorothy was with us. And then Christy Yamaguchi wins the gold medal. First time we had a women gold medalist since um, Dorothy Hamill. And she said, I want to join Stars on Ice. I don't want to go any other route, but Stars on Ice. So she joined us, and then Paul Wiley joined us, and then Katarina Bitt joined us, and then Kurt Browning joined us, and Torblin Dean and Gordy M. Grinkoff, and all these people joined us. How much do you think that vision you had for greatness got people to join? You said, you know, let's really do this right. Let's make this great. I mean, you know, leaders have got to inspire people with the vision that they have for their company. Well, I think they trusted me to, you know, fight for them. When you're a touring entertainer, there's this really in interesting line or balance between 
like talent and management. <laughs> and it's got it's and then you've got the crew, right? So there's there's a lot of different entities that go into a touring show like Stars and Ice that really needs someone to step into the area between all those entities and quietly, you know, plead our case, right? And so with Bob Kane and with um, Gary Swain, who are the producers from IMG on that side, great. The crew side, they were my focus on so many levels because they work harder than everybody else. And I really wanted to make sure that they felt loved, appreciated, and that we make sure that we recognize, you know, all of their efforts to make sure that we look our best when we step on the ice. And then for the skaters, it was just like, this is an opportunity. This is an unbelievable opportunity for us to chart our own course. Really just invest in that. And, and yeah. do everything you can. And so the skaters would come together and we'd have production meetings together where we produce the show together. And then it got to a point where once Christy joined the tour and we were 60 cities instead of 30 uh, and then 12 in Canada, it became important that we had, you know, more of a, a prominent producer or choreographer, director of the show to kind of allow us to do our jobs while looking after a lot of those duties that the skaters and I were doing ourselves. So it really grew organically and it, and it was really done in a way of, I'll fight for you. Give me the best you've got so that I can representing you as well as that you need to be represented in order to step into this opportunity that we can build something specific and something spectacular. So people knew that you you really had their back and you wanted their best interests, which is uh, fundamental for any any great leader. And I had to be the hardest working guy there. Otherwise, how am I going to ask anyone else to rise up to this challenge and this opportunity if I don't show them that I'm willing to work harder than they do. So I was skating at the top of my game. I was doing programs that were more difficult than anything I'd ever done before. Is that where you first did the backflip? Uh, first did the backflip, second year in ice capades. How do you get the courage to even try that the first time? You, you got to be halfway lunatic. You know, I mean, you, you got to dream it up. And then isn't there any kind of fear that you have when you do that the first time? Yeah, it takes, well, I'll tell you, the first guy that did it was a lunatic. His name was Skippy Baxter and he did it in the 40s. He just said, you know, if I skate backwards really fast and stick my toe in the ice, I bet I can get over in a backflip. And he did it, right? So he was the pioneer. And I took my first backflip lesson from Skippy Baxter and I was like, okay, you know, skating backwards really fast and sticking your toe in the ice isn't a, really a strategy. <laughs> it's a recipe for disaster. So I went to a friend of mine who's a gymnastics coach and I spent a year working with him on and off to build those kind of muscles and that technique in order to be able to prepare my body and my mind to be able to go over straight over. Because anytime you watch skating, you'll see that the second you leave the ice, you start rotating, right? So when you go to do backflip, you're breaking all of those habits that you've learned from day one. And it took me about a year of, of really just teaching my body how to square itself off and to go straight up in the air and then tuck my pelvis and then everything flips over. And it's sort of like, you know, I always said it was tuck and pray, but it's more like it's up and over, right? <laughs> and so I, I learned it right over time. And I took, it was one of those things where I, I knew that this was something I needed to respect because my head was going to be closer to the ice than the rest of my body. And I needed to respect <laughs> that. Makes sense to me. And know. so, yeah, by the time I learned it, I had the movement down so well that putting it in the show, I put it at the beginning of my performances in, when I first learned it. So I did it on fresh legs. And then slowly over time, I'd put it at the end where it would have the greatest impact. Wow, that's great. You know, and you win the gold, you're filling arenas with stars on ice, you're Boy, doing these backflips, oh. you know, and you're you're unbelievably popular. I mean, I saw a survey where you were ranked ahead in popularity of Michael Jordan and, and Magic Johnson. Now look, Magic Johnson, 6'9", biggest smile in the history of the oh, world. And one of the greatest people you'll ever meet, yeah. What do you have that he didn't? I mean, what what really drove your popularity? What what put you ahead of him? Women. <laughs> no, I mean, it's it's like when you look at figure skating, and it was sort of like my secret strategy here. Um, I would look out in the audience and figure skating is loved by women, right? And I was, you know, I was never going to be that guy that was going to be controversial in any way. I was never going to be that guy that, you know, was um, inaccessible or I was never going to present myself as royalty that, you know, kind of put me up, you know, never, you know, I'd, I'd peek out of the curtain, you know, before the show and I'd see all these women. 
But I also saw something else, and it struck me. It hit me like a ton of bricks. I'd see a guy sitting next to his wife, arms crossed, slumped in his chair, checking his watch, looking around to see if anybody of his friends were there because he's taking one for the team, and he's like going out on date <laughs> night with his wife, and this is what she wanted to do, and he'd rather be anywhere else. <laughs> Why not see as a strategy... If I can get that guy on his feet, if I can win that guy over, if I can get a standing ovation from that guy, I'm onto something really unique and really powerful. So if I'm one of those guys that's not only liked by the people that I'm expected to be you know, appreciated by, and that's the women fans of the sport, and if I can break through to the men, and it's like to this day, it's hilarious. Uh, I'll be at the airport, and a guy will walk up to me, and he'll say, hey, are you that skater guy? I go, uh, yes, sir. And he goes, oh, I, you know, I don't watch that stuff. I, I'm, a, I'm like football, and I, I really like uh, baseball a lot, but I, I don't watch figure skating. But my wife loves you. Can I introduce you, please? And I go, absolutely. So this guy will go, and he'll get his wife, and he'll come back, and he'll say, honey, look who I found. And she'll look at me like, I have absolutely no, no idea who that is. <laughs> and I, I just go, win, <laughs> win. And, you know, it's in, it's in that way. I, I saw this with a lot of skaters as, as well. If you don't choose your audience, but you create an atmosphere where your audience can choose you, now you're onto something. Because you have a broader appeal, you have, um, there's no limitations, there's no barriers to your ability to create a platform and grow your sport. Like my, my heroes weren't skaters, weren't athletes. My heroes were rock stars. You know, there were three in particular. Bruce Springsteen. Love him. Blue collar, get out there, did four hour shows, over delivered, uh, never over promised. You know, he's that guy that you just knew that when you went to one of his shows, he was going to work hard. I wanted to be that guy. Neil Diamond, every time he's on stage, you just see his love of his craft and his love of his music, and it's just infectious. And that's why he was able to tour for 50 years. I go, I want to be that guy. I want to show the love of my craft and everything else. And there's another guy that was kind of like the ace up the sleeve, and that was Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin. When Zeppelin broke up, and he, I always loved them because they were so adventurous in their music, and they were so, you know, each album was so distinct to the last. When he went solo and he started experimenting with different rhythms and everything else, I go, I want to be like him where it's not predictable where it's, it's really every time it's fresh and every time it's new and, and where it's not just, you know, kind of making sausages where, you know, I could step on the ice and I could do something that people would like wonder what it's going to be this year and that it was going to deliver because it was done with integrity and with authenticity. I want to be like those guys. And that combination really worked. It allowed me to build a unique career that wasn't based in, well, he's just that. Like, you know, I look back on a lot of skaters before me. Well, he's just a classical artist or he's just avant-garde or he's all meat and potatoes and no parsley, you know, those types of things. I wanted to step into something where I could create all these really fun numbers that I love doing every single night with the challenge that next year I've got to surpass it joyfully surpass it without a lot of pressure. And I was able to, in all those years I was with Stars and Ice, um, I was able to close the show every year, no matter who the Olympic champion was coming in, because I'd earned their trust in order to be able to do that. I love how you best practice superstars in, in other vocations, which is being an action learner, which is great. How'd you get into skating in the first place? I was very sick as a child. I was in and out of hospitals for four years. I wasn't growing. I wasn't developing. I was um, I was adopted at six weeks of age, so my parents didn't know what to expect. But it became obvious after a while that something was wrong. And so uh, we started going to the doctor and the doctor knew that something was wrong and couldn't figure it out. And I got misdiagnosed several times. Um, I went from Bowling Green, Wood County Hospital to Toledo Children's Hospital to Ann Arbor Children's Hospital, University of Michigan. And then the fourth year we ended up at uh, Boston Children's. And, and it was there that I had every symptom of Schwachmann-Diamond syndrome, which is celiac disease. I wasn't growing. I was just distended stomach. I was very weak. And Dr. Schwachman himself uh, put me through every test he could imagine. And um, he just said to my parents, he goes, he doesn't have Schwachman-Diamond syndrome. He has every symptom, but he didn't have it. I don't know what's wrong with him. Here's my advice. Go home, 
live a normal life, take him off all the restrictive diets and just see what happens because medically there's not a thing we can do for him. This is a four-year adventure you've been on. We don't have any answers. Go home, see what happens. And so to give my uh, parents one morning off each week to kind of bond with my little brother who you know is now in the house and adopted and to give them an opportunity to kind of recharge their batteries after this four-year a really horrific, very stressful um, four years of their sick son. Um, our doctor said, here's how you take your morning off. There's a brand new facility at Bowling Green State University. It's the ice arena. Every Saturday morning from eight until noon, they teach children how to skate. There's over a hundred kids in the program. Let him go. And so I, I walk into the rink and there's 120 well kids. And I was really more, way more comfortable with sick kids because I'd spent more time with them than well kids. But I'm looking at 120 well kids and it's like, wow. And so, um, you know, first couple of weeks I was hanging onto the wall and letting go. And then, you know, after several weeks, I realized that I could, I could skate as well as well kids. And then after several more weeks, I realized that I could skate as well as the best athletes in my grade. And it was my first real honest taste of self-esteem. Wow. Like I can do something. And so I, w I lived at the rink. I wanted to be on the ice all the time. My parents had to threaten me to get me off the ice. And, <laughs> and, and I couldn't be on the ice enough. I skated every freestyle, every public session. I was starting to take private lessons. I was, I was testing. I was starting to compete that very first summer. It was just a, a beautiful discovery that you know, with my size, with my health, and with everything else, I could actually participate in a sport that I could do on my own without the threat of getting killed by some other bigger person. And and it was there that my health turned a, a huge corner and I started to grow again and get healthy again. So it was miraculous. Wow, that is a, that's, that's a great story. And, you know, your mom, she passes away from cancer. You'd been diagnosed with testicular cancer, you had a brain tumor. Three. And yet, you know, three. <laughs> Who's and counting? Yet, you know, I saw, I, saw a I saw a talk. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because it just makes this question even more profound, in my opinion, is that, you know, you talk about cancer being a blessing, mm -hmm. okay? You know, how did you arrive in, in that kind of headspace? You know, how could you reframe something like cancer into a blessing. Well, when I lost my mom to cancer, I didn't think it was a blessing at all. I, I, um, I was devastated. The morning I lost her, she was the center of my universe. You know, she was the person on the planet I loved the most, the one I respected the most, the one I had the best relationship with. She, you know, spent the night in the hospital with me. She was always the one that got the joke. She was the one that uh, would take me to the ice. She was the one that, you know, became the test chairman in the skating club. She was, she was it. She was beloved in our community. And the morning I lost her, I realize I'm 18, I'm underachieving. She sacrificed every single thing in her life to make sure that I had an opportunity to live mine. The least I can do is try to become the skater that she sacrificed for me to be. And so I stepped into this thing where I, I would just try to honor her every session. I would try to honor her every moment I was on the ice. I, and, and I went from being ninth in the country the last time she saw me skate to being third in the United States the very next year, just in one decision to honor my mom. And, and that became an Olympic birth in 1980. And then everything happened after that. But when I had cancer, you know, I was on top of the world. I was, you know, year 13 of what I thought would be a two to four year professional career. We were selling out Madison Square Garden for like third year in a row. We were, you know, it was just this big success story, Stars and Ice. And it was just, I was really working way too hard. So I thought I had an ulcer and I went in and um, to, you know, just to, can you give me something that my, my abdominal pain is just too much? And the doctor put me through some scans and he sat me down. This was in an emergency room in Peoria, Illinois. And he just said, we found a mass. And I just kind of chuckled a little bit. And he goes, what's so funny? And I go, well, I mean, you know, look at me. Nobody's ever used the word mass in description of me before. <laughs> and um, he goes, no, this is either benign, malignant or something else. And I realized in that moment, it was like 20, two, two months shy of 20 years of losing my mom. And I was just overwhelmed with fear. 
And that fear, I mean, it was amazing that, you know, with, I don't know if it was five minutes, five seconds or a nanosecond, that fear was instantly replaced with the sense of power and mission and authority that I was going to fight this thing with everything I had. And I was going to be back on tour next year. And that was kind of my, my thing is back on tour next year. And so months of chemotherapy, I had a big 38 staple surgery. So somebody my size, you know, it's kind of like filet of Scott. It was huge. And and then I had to come back from all of that to be on tour the very next year, and I made it. Um, but it was one of those things where it was a fork in the road, and I needed to take it, right? And I knew that now the tour was the tail <laughs> that wagged the dog. You know, I didn't feel like the dog anymore, and and I needed to just sort of sort it out. So um, I got in my car, and I just drove, and I ended up – I lived in Denver, and I ended up, you know, kind of going to – you know, through New Mexico, I stopped in Tucson for a while to visit friends, and then I ended up in L.A. and And it was there that I I met my wife in Memphis. She moved to she find out a few months later that she's moving to L.A. We start dating, and she's my wife, the center of my life, and mother of my children. And and uh, she led me to my faith. And you know, cancer allowed that to happen. So I I don't look at cancer necessarily. It's it's um, it's a, a tough battle. It's, you know, it hits you on every level. And it was in my third brain tumor diagnosis that I kind of figured it out. Um, they would give me treatment options. You know, I, I'd already treated the first one with radiation, the second one with a surgery that didn't go well. And then the third year, they go, here are your options this time. And all I hear was like, blah, 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 blah. I couldn't hear because everything in the back of my mind said, get strong. Just get strong. Mm-hmm. Get strong. And I didn't know what that meant. And it, I, I didn't know if it meant I need to get strong physically, like I need to work out more, or if I need to get strong emotionally, like get in touch with my, you know, whatever. If I need to get strong intellectually, just be more interested in everything going on around me, um, try to grow, you know, my understanding of things, or if it was spiritually, I need to get stronger. And so I, I just chose E, like I did in high school. If I didn't know the answer, I just chose E, all the above, right? And I was able to um, just get stronger physically, emotionally, intellectually, and spiritually. And I've now, it, it was diagnosed six years ago, and I've never had to have it treated yet. So I thank the Lord for that. He gets all the glory in that. But it's just that idea that we can step into getting strong. Yeah. Like we can, we can, that's one thing we can all take ownership of is being stronger better, deeper than we've ever been and more in touch, you know, and just take responsibility for our physical lives, our emotional lives, our intellectual lives, and mostly our spiritual lives. Because, um, you know, I firmly believe that this life is a blip compared to what's to come. And, uh, you know, we can spend this life in quality and integrity to to really shore ourselves up for um, the opportunity of eternity. What's one piece of advice you'd give to anyone who wants to improve as a leader? Oh, just uh, lead by example uh, and be humble and hungry. Humble and hungry is a really good combination. I, I, if you can live in the balance of humble and hungry, you're probably going to be okay. And I've heard you say that it's what we do with the second chances in life that really matters. You know, what do you see as your unfinished business? Uh, my unfinished business is, um, you know, to see it through. You know, each opportunity, each thing that comes is an extension of the last and to do it the best I possibly can and not feel like I'm entitled to anything, right? This whole entitlement thing, it's like, well, don't you know who I am? I've heard so many Olympians say that. Like there was this funny story of of Bart Connery married Nadia Comaneci, arguably the greatest gymnast of all time. You know, Simone Biles, of course, is in the conversation, but Nadia Comaneci was the first major superstar, global superstar in gymnastics. And they were on a gymnastics tour. And one of the guys who just won a gold medal in the Olympics insisted to be in first class on their gymnastics tour. And so Bart and Nadia are back in coach. <laughs> you know, they're back mixing it up with everybody. And they're like, okay. okay that that humble pie is going to come hard and quick you know so um you know it's there's so much that we can learn from just 
um, taking a step back and just enjoying each opportunity as, as just that, an opportunity, and not feel like we're entitled to something because of what we've done, but what we're about to do, which will open the next door, and that will open the next door, and that will open the next door. If, if I lived on this idea that I was owed anything because I won the Olympics 38 years ago, that you owe me, or that this, this, is, then I, I'm, I'm missing the point. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I want to uh, thank you very much, Scott, for this time, because, uh, and also with what you're doing for the, the Scott Hamilton's Cares Foundation, where well, you're trying to improve- you the lives of others and people are struggling with cancer and scottcares.org please join us scottcares.org you you are giving back to others and making a big difference in this world and thank you for the example you set as a leader and a person and thank you for taking the time to be on this show i appreciate it oh, thank you david i appreciate your time and and good luck with everything you're doing i pray that you bless a lot of people with this podcast thank you thank you Let me tell you something. I was absolutely moved by Scott's personal story, how he's had so much adversity on the health front and how he looks at all the challenges that he's had as a blessing. And I couldn't help but think about my wife, Wendy, when I was listening to Scott. Wendy's a type one diabetic. She's had it since she's seven. She's 69 years old today. She risked her life to have Ashley, our daughter, who is now 38 years old. She went blind after the pregnancy, fought back from that after going through all the operations it takes with diabetic retinopathy. She has broken almost every limb in her body at one time or another. When she went to the Alps to ski on the last run, she had seven cracked ribs. You know, she has fractured her A1 vertebrae. Most people get paralyzed when that happens or they die. You know, she has had severe diabetic seizures many, many times in her life. And recently she's just had a stroke and then fell and broke her arm. But let me tell you something, she is fighting like a warrior to get back to where she was. You know, it takes so much courage, so much inspiration to get up once you fall. But Wendy's doing it, Scott obviously did it, and we all need to do it. There's no amount of winning that makes any of us immune to failure. We all face challenges in our life, but it's getting up when we fall that matters most. Here's what I want you to do this week. Think about three friends that are up against some major challenges. It could be at work, at home, in their health, and I want you to send them a link of this episode to encourage them. You know, Wendy listened to this episode, and I have to tell you, it really lifted her spirits up, and it gave her a can-do attitude. Scott's story is so inspiring, and I know that if someone has been knocked down, this may be just what they need to hear to get back up. So do you want to know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that the great leaders know how to get up after they fall. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader that you can be. See you next week. <laughs>